Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In 2015, Convention of State's co-founder Michael Farris testified before a legislative committee in South Carolina in favor of our Article 5 resolution. Once two-thirds of the states pass this legislation, the convention can propose amendments that would place term limits, fiscal restraints, and other limits on the scope and power of the federal government. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, Representative Taylor, thank you so much for those kind and generous remarks. Uh, <clears throat> I would begin with the, the uh, view of the Founding Fathers on this proposition. No level of government should have the final authority concerning the extent of power that that level of government should have. And so the, the series of checks and balances that were put in, and including the federalism checks and balances, were intended to follow that line of reasoning, that no level of government should ever have the final say over any of its, its uh, the extent of its own authority. Right now, Washington, D.C. is out of control, and I would submit it's out of control because state legislatures have not used their constitutional authority to restrain federal power. Uh, a friend of mine said, what would the government look like if no president in American history had ever vetoed any legislation? Well, you see, it would be absolute legislative tyranny. And they said, what would it look like if the U.S. Senate had decided that it was going to behave like the House of Lords in Britain and approve 99% of all the bills that the House proposed? The answer is you'd see absolute dominance by the House of Representatives. And they said, what would it be like if the federal government never had any checks and balances coming from the states on the issue of the extent of federal power? under Article 5, and he said, you'd see exactly what we have today because the states have never effectively invoked Article 5 of the Constitution. There have been over 400 applications for Convention of the States in the history of the Republic. We've never had a convention because there is a binding legislative rule that you have to have an agreement on the subject matter to start with. And so um, there, there's enough existing applications for dozens of conventions today if there's not a rule on the subject matter. There is a rule on the subject matter. Now, the, the contention that I'll deal with in a minute is that even though you have to have an agreement on the subject matter to start, then you can change the rules in the middle of the stream. And I'll, I'll deal with that question in a second. But Washington, D.C. believes that it, it has the final say over everything. The Supreme Court believes that they have the final say over everything. In fact, at least 17 times the Supreme Court has said, usually in dissents, but they've acknowledged that there is no realistic check on their power other than their own internal sense of self-restraint. The, the other kinds of restraints on the Supreme Court's power, such as impeachment, render, limiting the appellate jurisdiction of the court, the court themselves have said those are not effective checks on our power. And so uh, I think we need to take the Supreme Court's word for that particular observation. Now, as a consequence of the federal government having no state-based check on their power. Not only have they run away with their own power, they've effectively turned the state legislatures into ministerial agents implementing congressional decisions, even worse than that, uh, administering 
administrative decisions coming from agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Labor and so on. And as a result, the people of South Carolina and the people of the, every other state legislature are being denied the basic right of self-government because you are supposed to implement the policy as per the will of the voters of South Carolina. Your district first, but the voters of South Carolina generally. Instead, when you are implementing the will of Congress or the will of some agency, you're administering someone external to South Carolina's will, whether it's the voters of Florida, Georgia, Minnesota, and Massachusetts, and California, or it's some bureaucratic agency, you're beholden to answer to someone outside the state of South Carolina, which is a fundamental violation of the rule of self-government, the principle of a Republican form of government. That is, we elect our own leaders to make our own rules. And so the only way to, to get that back, both rein in the federal government's authority and to reassert your own lawful ability to listen to your own constituents and not to anybody else, the Convention of the States is a solution to both of those problems. Now, our application, which has been passed completely in Florida, Georgia, and Alaska, and this year so far, 10 state legislatures have passed it in a single house. Um, Missouri is supposed to vote on it for the second house, either today or tomorrow. Um, and so, but we have not completed uh, an ad a, any additional states completely this year, but we have 10 states that have passed it in a single house. Uh, sometimes in the Senate, sometimes in the House. But the, our application calls for a convention of the states for the purposes of imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and imposing term limits on federal officials. Now what that means in a practical sense is fiscal restraints and federalism, basically, are what we're trying to aim at. Fiscal restraints would, would include a balanced budget, but more. It would also include subject matter limitations on congressional spending, mainly by fixing the General Welfare Clause. The founders' original meaning of the General Welfare Clause was if the states can spend money on a topic, the federal government is precluded, at least under the General Welfare Clause, from spending money on the same subject. Virtually all federal debt comes from an abuse of the General Welfare Clause and fixing that would shut down that form of federal spending. Um, so fiscal restraints would be not only a balanced budget, but spending limitations by subject matter and also um, tax limitations. For example, requiring a supermajority vote to raise taxes would be a tax limitation measure. Federalism measures, including the general welfare clause fix I've just described, would also come from fixing the improper use of the commerce clause. State employees are subject to federal law on their wages and hours. That's just nonsense. Um, that's you know, subject matter nonsense, that federalism is being uh, violated on a daily basis through the Commerce Clause. And so, the, and, and it also is imposing uh, duplication on the businesses of this country. You have business uh, regulation of the state and federal on almost every subject matter and the competing regulations are both unconstitutional and unworkable for businesses. And so fixing the Commerce Clause would be an important part of ringing in federalism. The uh, 
the problem of judicial legislation comes from courts believing that they are the judge of their own power. Treaties are being improperly used to control the domestic policy of the United States. Um, the executive power of this country, and it's not just President Obama. Every president has done this, some to more greater extent than others, perhaps, but every president has done this, and that is ruling through the executive branch. Uh, I'm told uh, by one of our supporters who did the research on this, uh, last year Congress passed 224 new laws in 2014, but 3,554 new regulations were written in 2014. The enormous weight of that burden in violation of Article I, Section 1 of the Constitution, this all legislative authority is vested in the Congress of the United States. And when Congress says, well, we're delegating our authority to some agency, they're not delegating their authority. They're giving away the people's right to vote for the people who make the law. They don't have, that's not their authority to give away. The Constitution doesn't say you can give away your authority in this regard. It is simply improper to use executive power. All of these things can be fixed when the states get together in a convention of the states, when 34 states pass an application for the same purpose, they get together, the final text of any proposed amendment would be written at the convention, one state, one vote. The, uh, you know, some people say, well, California and all the crazies in California, Massachusetts would do what they want to do. Well, they get one vote just like every other state. There are 11 states concurrently where the Democrats control one house, there are 31 states where the Republicans, excuse me, Democrats control both houses in 11 states. 31 states where the Republicans control both houses in, in those states. And the other eight states, each party controls uh, one house. Um, I don't believe that there's any political scenario whatsoever for you with those, that lay of the land to get something crazy through, through either the right or the left. You can't do it because when 13 states vote no, it's no because 38 states have to ratify whatever comes out. Again, one state, one vote. When 38, the ability to, uh, to get something crazy through that maze is impossible, um, either to the right or to the left. You're going to be seeing sensible limitations that are returning federalism, having fiscal restraint, and term limits, I believe, especially uh, my personal interest is to see term limits on federal judges because there will be some effective check on their power at least. The, um, the people, uh, in fact, I know some of my friends are here in the room. That I know they've testified before and they apparently won't be testifying again because we're not doing repeating. Um, but they believe that uh, this is a dangerous process because it can run away. There are three reasons why it cannot run away. Uh, you know, in law and politics, there's no such thing as an absolute guarantee to anything, but you can deal with high probabilities or they're virtual certainties. Uh, can, you know, I, 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 I could be appointed to the next Supreme Court vacancy by President Obama. It's possible, but the probabilities of that are so close to zero, it's not worth talking about. And the same kind of probabilities are the probabilities of a runaway convention. The, um, the, there are three checks. There's a legal check, there's a political check, and there's a historical check. The political check is what I've just said already, 38 states have to ratify. If t 13 houses in a single state vote no, the answer is no. In fact, if they just don't vote, the answer is no. 
you have to affirmatively vote yes, both houses in 38 states. So the chances uh, of a runaway getting through that are the same as me getting appointed by President Obama to the Supreme Court. The, the chance, the, the, the legal check is, comes from a case that I litigated. Um, back in the late 1970s, Congress purported to change the ratification deadline for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, going from seven years to ten and a half years. I represented four Washington state legislators who filed the very first constitutional challenge to that manipulation of the Article V process. The federal, my case was consolidated with a case brought by legislators from Idaho and Arizona. And we all worked together. And the ruling of the federal district court was, you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. Moreover, they ruled that Congress can't use Article I power, the necessary and proper clause, in the Article V context. And so the, uh, the, the ruling was as unconstitutional. The Supreme Court noted probable jurisdiction, deliberately sat on the case until uh, the second deadline passed, and so the court held it to be moot. So the, pr the precedent that was created is not binding, but it's persuasive. We didn't create the rules that the federal court judge ruled out of thin air. We had Supreme Court cases from the 1700s and much more uh, to, to bolster the, the ruling that the court ultimately uh, gave us as litigants. And so the rule, the legal rule is you can't change the rule in the middle of the stream. The political rule is it's impossible to change the rules in the middle of the stream. And then the historical rule, people will contend that the Constitution was unlawfully adopted because they changed the rules. They were only supposed to go ratify or um, amend the Articles of Confederation and instead they, they um, rewrote the whole document and then they changed the rules from 13 states to 9 states. Both of those things simply aren't true. The states, including the state of South Carolina, were the ones that appointed their delegates and gave them their authority. In, in Federalist 40, Madison makes this very clear. Federalist 40 says, we got our authority from our state legislatures. And the state legislature of South Carolina, as well as the other states, told their delegates, except for Massachusetts and New York, who did something slightly different, but all the other states said to their delegates, Render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the Union, which is exactly what they did. They did, said nothing about only amend the Articles of Confederation. And so we can see that at least for the uh, 10 of the 12 uh, state delegations, they were clearly obeying their, their instructions. And in Federalist 40, Madison makes the defense why the other two states were obeying their instructions as well. But that's as a historical footnote, not a, a basis for saying that the entire convention was illegal. They, that language, only amend the Articles of Confederation, came from an endorsement by Congress passed after seven states had already called the convention, named their delegates, given them their credentials. Congress can't call a convention that's already in progress. It was already in progress. They, and Congress didn't think they were calling the convention. They were only endorsing it. So, um, and before the, the new ratification process was used, which indeed was a change from 13 state legislatures to nine state conventions, all 13 state legislatures approved that change of process. And so it was unanimously approved. The process was unanimously approved both by Congress under the, under the Confederation and by the 13 state legislatures. So legally, historically, and politically, you cannot have a runaway convention. The last point I'll make, and then I'll, I'll be glad to answer any questions. People contend that the Constitution is not the problem. The you know, we're not going to fix the problem by, by changing the Constitution. We, gotta, we just change the people in Washington, D.C. instead, and then that will fix the problem. I submit that that's wrong in two ways. 
First of all, the problem is not the people who are in Washington, D.C. only. The problem is Washington, D.C. itself. Because if Washington, D.C. is the judge of how much power Washington, D.C. has, I don't care who you send there, Washington, D.C. is going to be in favor of more power for Washington, D.C. This only works when someone outside of Washington, D.C. decides how much power Washington, D.C. should have. So. We need to make the decision about how much power, not by merely by electing more good people to, want to represent us in Congress, which is obviously a good idea, but effectively we've got to change the, the locus of the decision making. Secondly, there really are effectively two constitutions in this country. Not that there should be, but there is. The realistic thing is there is. There's the Constitution as written, and then there's the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Once in a while, they're the same thing. Like the, the Supreme Court's most recent decisions on the Second Amendment, pretty close to the same thing. Constitution as written, Constitution as interpreted. But most of the time, the Supreme Court's interpretations of the, the Constitution bear little resemblance to the original meaning of the Constitution, particularly in the areas of how much power Washington, D.C. should have. On that area, it, it is wrong. And we have to, at times, change what the Supreme Court says about things. The Supreme Court said that black people can never be citizens in Dred Scott. We had to change that. And we changed it with, ultimately with the 13th and 14th Amendment and, and made sure that all Americans had the right to citizenship regardless of their color and regardless of what the Supreme Court said on the, on the subject matter. And the Supreme Court got reversed and it stayed reversed on the, by constitutional amendment. The Supreme Court said women can't vote, despite that we had the Equal Protection Clause on the books. And despite the obvious Equal Protection Clause, the Supreme Court said there's no constitutional right for women to, to have an equal vote. We reversed that with the 19th Amendment, and it stayed reversed. And so um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that I helped to write was reversing a Supreme Court decision on religious freedom. It got reversed, and it effectively stayed reversed, at least so far, the Hobby Lobby decision, the justice that wrote the decision we were, we were reversing voted in favor of the opposite position that he had voted for previously because the language bound him. And so if, you, if we write things correctly, we can reverse the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution and put it back on an even keel. What we're trying to do is to make sure that, that there's no longer a divergence between the Constitution as written and the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. We want those to be one and the same, at least on the subject matters of how much power Washington, D.C. should have. This process has been tested for over 100 years. Not in the Article 5 context exactly. There have been two, 32 multi-state conventions, about two-thirds uh, before the Constitution, about one-third since then. All of them have followed the you can't change the subject matter rule and one state, one vote rule. But in addition, the Uniform State Law Commission that this state and every other state participates in follows the exact same process that we want to use here. First, they identify the subject matter. Then they appoint a study committee to f come up with language for a proposed uniform law, like the Uniform Commercial Code. 
and then it's sent to the state legislature. And, then, and by the way, all their votes are taken one state, one vote. Send as many commissioners as you want, you vote one state, one vote. That process has been in place for over 100 years. We've got rules there. We can shift the rules from there to this process very easily. They've been tested over 100 years. And the Uniform Commercial Code is an example of how well these, this interstate cooperation can be on where something's in the state's subject matter jurisdiction, but it's a good idea to have a uniform law. States have proven that they can do that. And so the process is safe, the process has been tested, we can trust the states, we cannot trust Washington, D.C. with the extent of power of Washington, D.C. With that, I'd be glad to answer any questions that any of you have. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.